designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Historic and sustainable are words that have multiple meanings, and when put together are often considered mutually exclusive. As a Black female preservation architect specializing in sustainability, I occupy a unique space in the design profession where I live in a world of both and, not either or. So in this episode, I'm going to explore some of the levels that exist within the framework of historic and sustainable and what they mean to me. I knew that architecture and existing buildings were something that I wanted to do um, as a career from an early age. So I grew up in the Northern Virginia area and spent a lot of weekends in D.C. And so I saw many vacant buildings and many homeless people outside of those vacant buildings. And so from a young age, there was a disconnect for me because I saw buildings that needed people and I saw people that needed buildings. So I knew architecture was something uh, that I was going to do early on. And I think sustainability is something that was subconsciously ingrained in me, whether it was from uh, the Captain Planet (laughs) cartoon or uh, the Pocahontas movie, Colors of the Wind was my jam for a very long time, Um, or even the Reduce, Reuse, Recycle campaign to even my grandmother who uh, reused everything uh, to the point that it drove me crazy. She uh, reused tinfoil like 20 times before throwing it away. And so When I was younger, I equated um, reusing with just not having enough or being lower income. But really, it was my grandmother grew up and uh, inherited many sustainable tendencies after growing up and living through the Depression. Uh, And so all of that got ingrained in me. So then thinking about vacant buildings in D.C. and seeing the number of homeless people that could have been housed in those buildings, I decided that I was 
going to go to school and be an architect. Uh, so I went to UVA and studied architecture. Uh, but then during undergrad, existing and historic buildings weren't something that were really taught in architecture studio. Most of our studios were about designing new buildings instead of dealing with the existing buildings that were already there. So I knew I was going to go back to grad school. So I went back to get a master's in preservation and then also a master's in architecture. And so I went to Penn for both of those degrees. And it was interesting being at Penn because the way the system was set up, I had a cohort of architecture colleagues and a cohort of preservation colleagues. Many of my architecture colleagues thought preservationists just got in the way, they impeded progress, they were just annoying to the architecture process. Many of my preservation colleagues thought that architects didn't know how to design because, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings leaked and architects were egotistical and pretentious. And so there was a divide almost between the preservationist and the architects, which didn't make sense to me because in my mind, as an architect, I would want to design something that a preservationist would want to preserve in 50 years. And as a preservationist, I recognize that we need architects to keep designing things so that we still have some job security and things to preserve and interpret. So the same way I'm not more black or more female, architecture and preservation have always gone hand in hand for me. And so this point in time, in 2020, uh, the recent police brutality killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, coupled with all of the COVID-19 turmoil of the year, have resulted in an interesting awakening of non-people of color um, that has many corporations and design firms re-examining their role in the various systems of oppression that have brought the country to where we are at this point. And so, the past and the future merge to meet us here. It's one of my favorite quotes from Beyonce, of all people, um, but I thought that it's really poignant. The attention that this wave of police brutality and anti-racism is getting is leaving me and I'm sure many other people of color cautiously optimistic because this is not new to us. While there are many uh, non-people of color who are just now joining the conversation, and to that I say welcome, um, I will say that this is not new. I remember my heart breaking for Michael Brown when he was killed by police in Ferguson. I remember being a child and seeing the Rodney King beatings and being confused. And I remember learning about Emmett Till and how dangerous it can be for a black person to speak their mind to white people if they don't know them. The reality of being black in America is something that is not lost on me and was not lost on me throughout my education at predominantly white institutions, even though most of what I learned at those institutions did not have black history as canon in the teachings. All of the black history information that I learned, I had to do either on my own or through elective courses because it wasn't part of the history. And so the myth that American history is somehow separate from African American history is something that I'm optimistic will change. We'll start teaching a more comprehensive history as opposed to assuming that there's so many different otherings that have to happen outside of the perspective of the white American narrative. Not to mention, providing more of the full history will provide better historical context to make the historical events actually make more sense within their time. 
So throughout the timeline of white supremacy, so from slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, segregation, redlining, to the war on drugs, to mass incarceration, throughout that entire timeline, there have always been tangible marks on the built environment to keep Americans separated by race. And these show up as statues, as monuments, as buildings, as neighborhoods, as highways. There have been markings on our built environment to enforce these systems. And for decades, uh, the power to shape the built environment has been in the hands of white males. And both architecture and preservation are majority white fields. And I knew this going in, and that was not a deterrent. The demographics are changing of both of the professions. It still has a long way to go. Uh, and I say that because of the 115,000 or so licensed architects, 2% of those are African-American licensed architects. And of that 2%, less than 500 are licensed Black women architects. When I got licensed in 2013, I was around number 320 of uh, Black women architects who've been licensed in the country since the profession has, has been documenting and allowing Black women to be licensed architects. The gender numbers are improving. I know from a, women make up a, a larger percentage than 2%. I think we're closer to 20% of our licensed architect demographics. But all that to say, there's still room to grow so that we can continue to bring more diverse voices to the design profession. The gender numbers are improving, but still many designers are taking a paternalistic approach to designing for people who don't look like them or are framing historical events by centering the white perspective without considering the other vantage points. Preservation is starting to shift in the storytelling. For instance, instead of just celebrating the plantation house and ignoring the slave cabins, there have been concerted efforts in recent years to tell the story of the enslaved people at the plantation and to highlight the that the plantation would not have been possible without them and really starting to get rid of the myth of Southern gentry without slavery. And so the idea that you can have the big house without the little house is a myth and being able to tell more of that full story and being able to notice, hey, there's a perspective missing here. Going into a majority white, majority male profession and just being black in America, I had a different vantage point than most of my peers. Um, from a preservation standpoint, I was more interested in preserving a building because of the sustainability impacts of the embodied energy in that building, as opposed to wanting to preserve it because some dead old white man slept in that building. I wanted to preserve buildings because I know that people need buildings and buildings need people. From an architecture standpoint, I was more interested in serving the community as opposed to my ego when designing things, but recognizing the fact that the built environment has such a psychological impact on the people that and that interact with it on a daily basis. Living near vacant buildings can have such disastrous effects on the people who interact with them on a daily basis and also creates an us versus them mentality because the residents who live near a number of vacant buildings start to feel like, well, they don't care about us because they're letting their building sit vacant. And that building is now dangerous because it's vacant and they don't care about us enough to fix it. Even when you're driving through neighborhoods, you often feel unsafe in an area because of the deferred maintenance that you see on the buildings, less because you're seeing some act of violence happen on the street. So understanding that architecture and the built environment play a huge role in how people feel in a space is why I got into architecture. And from a sustainability standpoint, 
I got into it not because I wanted to save the earth, but because I wanted to save our species. Uh, humans are the ones that are in danger here. The earth will be fine. Within the sustainability circle, I've often been asked, well, where are all the black people that care about the environment? We haven't seen anyone. It's like, well, you're not looking hard enough. Uh, there are plenty of there are plenty of black people and people of color doing fantastic environmental work, but it's one of those things where if they're not sought out or asked to speak at conferences, they don't get put on the lecture, lecture circuit. Um, it just becomes more of a non-people of color needing to realize that um, there are people of color doing the work and um, looking for those other voices. I remember a couple of years ago, I was on a panel speaking to Leadership Greater Washington about sustainability. And at the end of it, one of the gentlemen um, from the cohort stood up and was like, you know, well, sustainability is all great and everything, but black people and low-income people, they don't care about sustainability. They're just trying to survive. And so I had to take that moment and reframe it because many low-income people are sustainable out of necessity. So they reuse items more than once because they have to. So the bread bag becomes a sandwich bag. The, you know, the mayonnaise jar becomes the coffee jar. Hanging out your clothes to dry on a clothesline instead of using a dryer. Walking to the store. All of these things are things that lower income people have to do out of necessity as opposed to an option. Affluent people have the option to recycle instead of reuse. So having that conversation and outlining the different elements that are wrapped up into sustainability, it was a really interesting conversation and an aha moment for him because he didn't associate those actions with being sustainable. He associated them with being poor. And so being able to have the conversations that realize the overlap between what actions different people are taking and how we're framing sustainability will get more people to the table. And so if you're framing an action, oh, because they do that because they're poor, as opposed to they do that because they care about the environment, that creates a different feeling, a different dynamic and dichotomy. For me, none of these concepts are mutually exclusive. Preservation, architecture, and sustainability are all about shaping the built environment for the people who will interact with it. So I look forward to using this podcast to share my vantage point and hopefully expand yours and continue to bring more of these worlds together. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The featured song that you heard in the episode is a sampling of The Vote by Sarah Gilberg. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Quiet people, quiet power, quiet minute, quiet hour, quiet patience, quiet line, quiet morning, quiet mind. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. 
where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris. Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.